Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have an exciting entrepreneur, someone that has done it, that has been through the full cycle, and I'm sure that you're going to find his story remarkable. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our next guest today, Syria Groding. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you. So originally born in Germany. I mean, talking about, you know, a remarkable story. I mean, you were born there, but all of a sudden, you know, you find yourself in a town of 5,000 people. So tell us about the upbringings. Well, I was born in a tiny town at the Lake of Constance in Germany in the very south. And two years into my life, my parents decided to pack up and move to a tiny place called Wehrheim, which is a 5,000 people village in, in the middle of Germany by Frankfurt. Milk from the local farmer, that kind of thing. And that's, uh, that's where I lived. I always picked up the milk with a bike. And also you got started into business very early, carrying the newspaper. <laughs> that's true. I carried the newspaper when I was 12 years old. At 13, I, up, I upgraded from uh, advertising flyers to newspapers, which was a big upgrade. And then um, I talked to the company that made the newspaper and told them about what I was working on by myself, which was programming computers. And then I suddenly got a call from them saying, you know what, Uh, I think we might need your help. Why don't you come doing your next vacation uh, break from school and program something for us? So before I knew it, I sold my first computer program to them at age 15, which was about actually making the job that I had previously in in a previous summer job obsolete by automating it with a computer in the advertising department. It worked. The job doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> but I mean, that, that's, pretty, that's pretty extreme. Like selling your first thing, you know, at 15 years old. I mean, wow. I mean, that's pretty, pretty cool. So, so in your case, I mean, something that was pivotal too was to really get that exposure to the uh, American culture. You know? And that happened to you uh, during an exchange program in Austin. So, so how was that for you? I was... Uh, very, very hell-bent on becoming an exchange student in the United States. I wanted to experience America. And um, I told the organization that organized it that I want to live in the sun. Uh, and I thought of California. And I, they, they did exactly what I asked them to. They placed me in Texas, in the sunshine, in the uh, southeast Texan area, um, a swamp area uh, called uh, Orange, Texas by Beaumont. And it turned out I loved it. I had a wonderful time. 
I went to high school there and I ran the school flag on Friday night football. Uh, I was a, cheer, a cheerleader, a male cheerleader. There were seven guys and 15 girls. And I ran the school flag across the stadium. Since then, it's really only gone downhill. Best job I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. Good stuff. And in, and in your case, I mean, you come back uh, in, while still in high school. I mean, you start to work with Hewlett Packard. I mean, how was that experience? Tell us about that. Well, I was uh, going back to Germany. I had two more years of school, although I had just graduated in Texas. Uh, that was kind of tough when in going back to school. Um, I had experienced a lot in Texas uh, with host families and changing them. And, you know, in my first family were alcoholics. And I found another family, a wonderful family that had no money, but were, had a wonderful heart. And to this day, they like my second family. And then I came back and I was in high school and I, and I really was, you know, itching to do something in addition. And so I became a programmer for Hewlett Packard on the side. Uh, and every Wednesday after school, I went to Hewlett Packard and programmed for them. Uh, as well as doing the breaks. And then I also helped an architecture firm with software technology as well. And this was all at a time when you could still be quite differentiated, even as a high schooler, uh, if you knew something about software and programming. So I made full use of that. So what do you think? You know, it's it's very interesting, your journey, because obviously here you had the exposure to business very, very early on. And then you end up after, you know, university and, and doing a little bit of uh, a radio DJing and, and all of that stuff. You end up in consulting. And I have to say that some of the most remarkable entrepreneurs that I have come across is those that went at it and launched a business with that background of either consulting or perhaps investment banking or having been investors, you know, uh, before. So I guess in your case, why consulting? I mean, why did you go into consulting and, and how do you think consulting has shaped you and also your mentality and the way that you see through things in order to, to, to be, you know, or to, or to see entrepreneurship the way that you see it? It's a great question. I was always interested in a lot of different things. Um, I loved media. I loved software. I also loved strategy. The idea of, you know, defining the path of an organization uh, and uh, and helping and shape shape that in a substantial manner. If you are 19 years old, then what options do you have to help shape the organizations of thousands of people if not going through a path like consulting or investment banking? Uh, I thought it was an incredible thing that at age 21, I started doing consulting work when I was in Japan. I was in, in Tokyo for half a year. And... While I was in, in, in college, I did radio reporting and I did radio DJing at night, which led me to the fact that I hardly ever, you know, I, I slept half of the day because I worked at night. But then uh, when I, when I came, uh, came to Japan, I thought this is the time for me to start exploring um, the, the whole consulting world, where as a pretty young person, you can move a lot of large stones. And so I joined Roland Berger, which is a European consulting firm in Tokyo as a summer associate kind of thing, like a freelancer. And then I came back to Germany. I joined them again for a while in, in the retail business. And then uh, after that, um, I became a what's called summer associate at McKinsey. And I did that actually during the winter, the summer associate thing, which was funny. Uh, and my first project was international. Before I knew it, I was, I was in Texas again, believe it or not. 
uh, a German-American company that I, we were helping shape the future strategy. And then after that, I joined them again while I was writing my master's thesis, and I wrote it together with McKinsey about something called creating killer ideas for radical business growth, a new creativity framework, much, much more efficient and effective than brainstorming that McKinsey had developed. And I found it fascinating to write about a creativity framework. And so I ended up doing all these creativity sessions about developing radically um, growth-spurring ideas for very large companies in multiple industries around the globe while I was doing my thesis for my, for my university program. What an incredible experience. And then my, my first uh, job at McKinsey when I joined them full-time after I finished my degree, my diploma, was, believe it or not, was to help write a book. So for one year, I was helping write a book about the software industry. And the idea was, are there any lasting management principles in an industry where your products are obsolete after 18 months? So we interviewed 100 software companies around the globe. And of course, that brought me to Silicon Valley. And when I touched down here, I have to say, there's something strange about the smell in the air here. I, there's something about the pine trees. I don't know what it is. There's this real, there's this association I have with this place. The moment I touched down, the world smelled different. The world behaved differently. And I fell in love with this place. And I knew that this was the center of innovation. And I had to be here. And that happened in 98. And then in 99, I, tr I tried to get a permanent transfer with McKinsey to the Palo Alto office and stay here. And I was very, very excited about it. But believe it or not, again, three months before I moved, I quit McKinsey. Why in the world would I do that? <laughs> it's because I had always said, if the right people and an idea I believe in show up, I will drop everything I do and I will start a company. So we ended up staying in Munich and I started the company out of Munich. Want to snap. So, so tell us about want to snap, because obviously your first rodeo, um, you know, putting in your notice, you know, going from the nine to five to, to really building and scaling something, your, your, your baby, your first baby. I mean, how, how was that experience for you? Yeah, it was definitely not nine to five at McKinsey. I can tell you that. But, 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 but handing in the notice was, um, was certainly a big move. And then, of, you know, we started a company in mobile, like in mobile, talking about mobile phones at a time when cell phones didn't look like this. They had green screens with one line on it in black and white. Yeah. It was ridiculous for us to do that. We were crazy early. And we did it because we believed that cell phones were going to revolutionize the world and how we interact. My first experience with mobile phones happened in Tokyo, believe it or not, in 94. I saw cars driving around with big, massive antennas on the roof. And I was wondering, like, what are these people doing? Are they watching TV in their cars? Where it turned out they had a mobile technology in their trunks of the cars to do a mobile phone, to have a mobile phone call. And the phones were mobile in the sense that you could drive them around. You could not carry them because they were too big. But then in 96 already, I had my first mobile phone. And I thought this was going to change everything, how we interact with each other. So when the idea came up to start a, um, a, a, a mobile shopping service in 98, 99, we, we dropped out of McKinsey and started the company. And of course, it was way too early. 
we were raising money in the dot-com boom. And in early 2000, we uh, figured out that our business model was terrible. Uh, the idea was to auction off new products over the mobile phone using voice technology and text messaging and a combination of the two. And people did actually call in and place bids. But of course, you're destroying your margin if, you're, if you are auctioning off new products that are not used because everybody's trying to get the cheapest deal possible and you're destroying the margin of the product. So it was a really bad idea to begin with. And then we ran out of money and we had no business model. And the stock market tanked. So talking about full entrepreneurship. So then the other two founders' job was to, became to find fresh money. My job became to find a new business model. I don't know who had the worst summer that year. So then we actually ended up uh, signing an agreement with McDonald's to become a mobile marketing company for them. Using mobile technology, everything that we'd already used for ourselves, we now used for uh, companies like McDonald's. And at the time, we signed a, I believe it was a $250,000 deal uh, for one year at a time when our competitors were doing $5,000 deals in mobile marketing. That's how small the business was. In fact, um, there wasn't even a name for mobile marketing. We were thinking about calling it mobile channel marketing. And then somebody said, well, let's just drop the word channel. It doesn't really help. Let's call it mobile marketing because the term hasn't existed yet. That's how early this was. We were real yeah. pioneers and it was a wonderful time because we explored everything. We invented it. And we invented as we went, as we needed it. And then uh, my obsession became to sign Coca-Cola. I thought if I have McDonald's and Coca-Cola, two of the biggest brands in the world, then mobile marketing is established, which of course is a fallacy, but I went for it. It took me three years and I finally signed Coca-Cola for uh, a, a bottle uh, label print on 160 million Coca-Cola bottles. It has, had a unique code on the back of the label that you could text in. And when you texted it in, you would receive a wallpaper or a game or a ringtone back to your, to your phone. And this was all brand new at the time. And it actually drove market share for Coca-Cola in Germany substantially. And it was the largest mobile marketing campaign that ever happened at this, around the world till that day. Wow. And obviously after this experience, you decide to leave in 03. Then, you know, just to, to fast forward a little bit, I mean, you did CBS, but then that got you into what ended up being a pivotal moment for you in your career, which was becoming an entrepreneur in residence at Kleiner Perkins, which was eventually the birth of uh, probably your biggest success to date when it comes to doing the full cycle as an entrepreneur. So, so tell us how that came about and what ended up, you know, becoming a Shopkick. Yeah, I had moved to Los Angeles and joined CBS to build their mobile television uh, business and mobile business in general, one of the largest media companies in the United States. And it was a, a very fascinating time. The iPhone just came out and all of that. And in 2008, I left CBS because I always wanted to move to Silicon Valley, remember? Right. So I said, this time is it. <laughs> Come hell or high water, we're gonna move to Silicon Valley. My, my then girlfriend, now wife, we took a trip around the world went to all these different places and observed how people use their mobile phones, took one and a half thousand photos in Bhutan, in the Himalayan mountains, and in South Africa, and in Brazil, in the, in the Amazon jungle, and so on. And then I came back and I said, we're gonna move to Silicon Valley, whatever, whatever happens. 
So we subleased a little house that was up for sale. And every, every Sunday, it was open house in our own house. <laughs> so we kept the house nicely tidy. <laughs> and I got very lucky that Kleiner Perkins, the venture capital firm on Central Road, offered me to join them as an entrepreneur in residence. So I joined them. Um, my timing was terrible. I joined on September 15th of 2008. If you remember on that day, Lehman Brothers went belly up and the financial crisis hit. And funding froze to a halt in Silicon Valley. So I was sitting here at Kleiner Perkins in a tiny office, and I was waiting to be fired any day because why bring an entrepreneur in residence on board if nobody gets funded anyway? But strangely, they were very kind to me and kept me going. And I got very lucky that I found this idea of Shopkick, which is about rewarding people simply for walking into a store with your digital smartphone without buying anything. So if you walk into Target, Macy's, Best Buy, you earn points that turn into gift cards and you can earn these points at Target and spend them at Walmart and vice versa. And this idea then got funded by Kleiner Perkins and Reed Hoffman joined the board. At the time, he was uh, still at LinkedIn um, and uh, he, um, uh, he was also a Greylock, became a Greylock partner shortly after another venture capital firm. And then we built this business and brought Target on board. And after Best Buy and Macy's initially took the plunge, and then we added Procter & Gamble and Unilever and various other players to the party. And that company then turned profitable. And in 2014, we have 20 million people having, having downloaded the app. The app drove uh, at the time about over a billion dollars in sales for its partners. And the company itself got sold for $250 million to SK Telecom from South Korea that wanted a U.S. market entry. And then I stayed for one more year. And then in 2016, I left. That's amazing. So let me ask you, Syriac, because, because this, this story of Shopkick is, is remarkable. And, you know, I know from other founders that, that had the opportunity of sitting, you know, at the board of LinkedIn. You know, they told me that it was just unreal, you know, like the, the way that, that they were as a team, you know, like really incredible. So how was it like uh, really working with Reed Hoffman at a board level? I mean, you need to share, you know, how was that experience? Well, the, the thing about Reed is he is probably one of the best entrepreneurs in the world. And so when he gives you advice, he has the ability to differentiate very well where he has exact information that you should absolutely follow if you if, if unless there are really good reasons not to, or where he has a belief based on a lot of data points, or where he really doesn't know and has a gut feeling, or where he doesn't have any idea, and he will tell you so. And that differentiation is extremely helpful and quite unusual, because most people don't dare to say, I don't know. Reed has no problem with that. He will tell you when he has an opinion that's well-founded based on data, or sort of based on experience, but not direct data, or whether he doesn't know. Uh, and the other thing that, that ex I experienced with, with Reed was the most productive sessions were usually outside of the boardroom. They happened at his house, uh, hanging out for two hours, talking about the company or about strategy or about life, or they happened in, in some restaurant, having dinner together and talking about any topic from world politics to religion to... Uh, to the, the actual company and 
uh, and the problems at hand. Uh, that kind of partnership is rare, and I learned what it, what it means to have a great board member. And um, Matt Murphy from Kleiner Perkins was also really, really good on the board. Uh, we, we, we built a real long-lasting friendship to, till, till this day. That's incredible. So obviously, here you go from subleasing a small apartment to selling a company for $250 million, so not bad at all. I'm sure that your wife, you know, like, was very happy, you know, that finally you guys could move out of the subleased apartment to, to buying a place. No, but, but I guess, you know, one thing that is super interesting in your journey is that you, you've been quite a traveler. Uh, I mean, we're talking about Japan, China, because you did a few years traveling after Shopkick, uh, the U.S., Germany. How do you think all this exposure to different cultures and to seeing different parts of the world has polished a little bit, a little bit your, your mind view of things? It's a great question. I would say the short answer is when you live in a country like Japan, where the value system is almost the opposite of what we are used to, for example, individuals are not the most important thing. The group matters, the success of the group. And there are funny stories that I experienced. I don't think we have time for it, but there are, when you experience those kinds, of, uh, those kinds of value shifts, it helps you understand that you can look at a problem in a very different way, from a different angle, from this side or from that side. And when you look at it from a different angle, it might, it might make complete sense to come to a completely different solution. And that opens your mind to think about problems in very different ways that otherwise maybe you wouldn't look at them. And I think the other thing, of course, it, it makes you value diversity. I, I have a firm belief that you want to make up your team of people with very different backgrounds and experiences to, so that they look at a problem in multiple different ways, different backgrounds, different hobbies, different looks, different genders, different uh, upbringings, different different clothing, different appearances, whatever it may be, as long as they share a set of core values like integrity, like um, honesty, high change the world attitude, can do attitude, those, those values are not flexible, but everything around it is. And that was one of my takeaways from living and traveling to many different places. Wow, that's remarkable. Now, after your, your trips, you know, to, because you did a little bit of traveling to China for a few years after Shopkick and then also taking a look at uh, entrepreneurs there in Europe too, you came back and, and now, I mean, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. But instead of going at it again with one company, you went at it again with two at the same time. So you got early on one end and then you got rewind on the other end, early where you are the CEO and and rewind where you are more like a, like the chairman co-founder. Also, can you tell us about why going at it like double, like 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 in two times, you know, in one go? And and also, what what are you doing with with those two companies and how you came about these two companies? Well, the short answer is because I'm crazy. Uh, I just can't <laughs> help it. But you okay. know, the the real the, the real story for me is I decided to follow my heart and not my mind. And my heart led me to science this time. I wanted to do something that can literally help everyone. I, I wanted to create companies that th if they win, everyone wins, not just the company or the people in it. And so Early is an early cancer detection company based on amazing technology from Sam Gambier, who used to run uh, the, uh, a, a very special 
uh, lab at Stanford where he brought together ideas from Im imaging, molecular imaging technology uh, to early cancer detection technology uh, to new uh, medical devices. And it was an incredible idea that he developed where he forces cancer to make itself visible by basically becoming its own slave that has to make something where the tumor cells have to make a synthetic biomarker that doesn't belong in human bodies at all, such as limonene. Limonene is not in humans unless you eat oranges. And if you haven't eaten oranges, but you're exhaling limonene, you might have cancer. When I heard that idea, I thought it was so crazy. Um, one of my first filters when I hear an idea is I try to forget it. And if I can't forget it, then it has passed the first filter. And I kept thinking about this idea. I looked at over 200 of them. So I, I, couldn't, I couldn't not, could not not do this. I, I had to do it. And then the other idea about Rewind, Rewind was, is, a, is a collaboration between me and, um, and uh, Peter Tolson, who I used to work with at, at Shopkick. And he's, he was one of the best people we had at Shopkick, an incredible entrepreneur with a, an amazing level of resilience. Uh, and we thought about what we could do together. And it was clear because I, that I was, since I was the CEO of early, I wasn't going to be able to do the CEO of another company at the same time in, at the, because they're both at the same stage almost, right? Um, and therefore, uh, he took the leap of faith. He did it. And I support him as a co-founder on the board. And it's a really great model. I really enjoy it. Uh, he's making major strides. And he got funded last year uh, from very good investors in a seed round. And meanwhile, Early had, has been funded twice now, one in a seed round with $19.5 million from Andreessen Horowitz uh, and Mark Benioff uh, and Mendel Ventures and Gen Fund from China. Uh, and then in the second round, we just closed a Series A three months ago now. And that's a $40 million round that was led by Kosla Ventures and uh, also included the previous investors as well as perceptive, uh, part, uh, perceptive advisors, a, a very, very good um, late-stage life science hedge fund and cast-in capital uh, and SANS capital and, and various others. So we are able to do this in parallel by me running early and by him running uh, Rewind. Uh, and it's a very rewarding experience to work on things that could, if they work, and they're hard problems, but if they work, they could help so many people. I find that to be very motivating. So let's say if you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of early and also the vision of rewind are fully realized, what does that world look like? Wow. That's a wonderful question. So in the case of early, it means that you can now detect cancer before it becomes so mutated. It's called heterogeneous versus homogeneous. In other words, multiple different mutations that it's very hard to treat. And if you find it before that, you can use precision surgery or targeted radiation to take it out. And if you're saying it's realized, then let's assume we also realize the next stage, which is what if you could force the cancer not only to produce a biomarker to make it visible, but even to kill itself? What if you could force the cancer to express a toxin that kills itself and actually makes you experience cancer not as a 
terminal disease, but as a benign experience. That's our mission statement. Early is supposed to make cancer a benign experience so you can move on with your life and live again. And in the case of rewind, you know, diabetes type 2 affects 26 million people in the United States alone. That's just one country. And it leads to people losing their feet, their eyesight, all kinds of terrible things. And what if you could actually get people to reverse it? And not only reverse it for short periods of time, but make them healthy for long stretches, for decades. That is how this world would look if both companies succeed. Wow. I mean, that's amazing. You know, like, you, it's rarely that you come across entrepreneurs like you. You know, like you were saying that, that it's not about you winning or the company winning. It's about everyone winning. It's about advancing humanity, right? And, and it's just remarkable, you know, what, what, what you're doing, you know, with those two companies, with your teams, you know, whatever you guys, all of you as a whole doing. I guess, you know, one thing that, that I want to ask you, Syriac, is imagine I'm putting you in a time machine, okay? And you have the opportunity of going back in time. You have yes. the opportunity of going back in time to, to sitting down on, on that couch of the uh, apartment that you were subleasing with your wife. And yes. here you are, uh, you know, finally you got the approval from your now wife of, of, of going at it as an entrepreneur and, and building, you know, what it's going to be this next, this next company based on what you know now. Because now we know about all, you know, this exit, these different companies, these incredible people that you have had the chance to associate yourself with and, and build a network, right? If you had the chance of going back in time and being there with yourself, sitting down on that couch, what would be one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self and why before launching a company? Yes, I would tell myself to be even more focused on moving the ball forward and taking the risks necessary. Do not be be afraid of the failures that come along with building any company. They are a normal course of building a company. It is absolutely not possible to prevent them. So in fact, force them to happen sooner. Force the, the, yourself to move to at a point that where you're taking substantial risk that either gives you a yes or no answer about whatever the question at hand is more quickly. Because I have observed myself being afraid of getting the answer that something doesn't work and therefore sort of trying to edge around and trying to make it work so that it, it, it is giving everyone the feeling that we're moving forward and including myself. But in reality, the answers are coming one way or the other. So make it quicker. And it's absolutely okay if the result is negative. Because then you know and you can do something different, or you can counter steer and you can take action on it. So the more I do this and the longer I do this, the more I'm moving towards results. I want to get the answers. It doesn't matter if they're positive or negative. Let's get to the answers so that we can move forward. And we're doing that at early right now. We're, you know, at early when we told our investors in the seed round, that we want to be inhumans in a clinical trial within three years from starting the company. They smiled and they chuckled and they said, that's great. Normally it takes six to seven years. 
And then we, we said, okay, we're going to do this, actually. We, 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 we found ways to cut times in half here and there. And one of the, one of the results is that we're going to Australia in, for the clinical trial instead of to the United States first, because we're shaving off nine months of approval timelines because they're deciding at the local level, not at the federal level. And the data is all usable in the United States afterwards if you run it the correct way, which we're doing. And so now, if all goes well, we'll start our first human clinical trial in the next four weeks in Australia. That's amazing. And, and, and you know, just to expand on that, because, you know, you, you were mentioning of, of not being afraid of failure. And obviously failure, you know, I always say that you either succeed or you learn. You know, that's just the way it is. I mean, how, how, how do you suggest or how do you recommend, you know, for all the people that are listening right now, all these founders out there, like, what's the best way to embrace or to deal with failure? The answer is very simple. Follow your heart and do what you're really passionate about and accept that failure is part of the journey. You will not succeed without failing along the way. So just accept it, take it in, and take it as a step towards success. And that will make it easier for you in your mind and in your heart. And if you follow your heart, your passion will be strong enough to overcome the extreme adversity that you're going to experience on the way of be, become, to become a successful entrepreneur. Because there is no way you're going to succeed without failing along the way. It doesn't exist. It's true for any startup, regardless of how incredibly successful and easy it looks from the outside. I bet you that at Facebook, there were lots of problems too, even on a rocket ship like that. And you just have to keep going. I love it. Well, Syriac, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Well, they can just uh, ping me on Twitter uh, at Syriac1 or reach out on LinkedIn and we'll get in touch. Amazing. Well, Syriac, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you very much. It was fun. Thank you so much. Your questions were great. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.